Welcome back to another episode of the podcast doing by Software Engineer. I'm your host, Perry, and today we got Abe on the show. Abe, how are you? Doing good. Uh, excited to be here and to help you be another software engineer who's going to rule your podcast with you. So excited. Yeah, <laughs> I honestly do appreciate it because I think like this sentiment, like at least in the industry that like we try, I mean, we, we do serious work at the end of the day, right? But we kind of take it lightly as well. And like we're able to pick on our own mistakes and our own flaws and really just work with it. So yeah, ruined by many engineers today. And honestly, I keep on saying it, but it's absolutely my pleasure, our pleasure listening to you because I know you have a very interesting background and especially the stuff that you work on today absolutely fascinating but um i guess like you know, for the people that don't know you yet you want to give us a quick intro of you know who are you and what you've been up to lately yeah absolutely so i'm abhe i'm a software engineer i work at this company called undo real industries which is sort of uh, a defense startup focused on autonomous systems uh, and ai for defense and uh, lots of robotics lots of perception lots of machine learning uh, lots of sensor integration and platformy work. So that has been my focus for the last couple of years or so. Before that, I was in college. I was doing AI research, focusing on machine learning, computer vision. And I also worked at Facebook and Stanford on related, related areas. Yeah, I mean, that was a mouthful. But that's why, you know, when you hear about this kind of stuff, it gets so exciting because the topic that we could dive into in terms of like, I mean, people take it for granted that AI, ML, they're all like integrated into our day-to-day life, but being able to actually look at it daily and even building any kind of infrastructure around it, I think that's going to be relevant for, you know, many people listening, but even for the people that like me don't have exact experience in it directly, whether it's that industry or whether it's, you know, just the good practices of working in in tech nowadays um, or even in startups nowadays, we're definitely going to get into that. Um, I just want to put it out there that uh, Andrew recently had a, Funding round, haven't you? Congrat- big congrats on that. Yeah, yeah, thank you. I think it was, uh, uh, I can't remember the, the letters anymore, but it was certainly a big, big jump up for us. Um, and yeah, we've been consistently growing, you know, uh, doubling in valuation and, and so forth. So it's been pretty exciting working here uh, through its hyper growth phase. Uh, like I was employee number 47 and now we are more than 500 employees. We've also gone through an acquisition. So it's, it's been quite the wild ride. Yeah, and where this is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, what what we could do is, um, what I like to do personally is, how did you get there? How did you get to where you are today? I think like this is generally like the most relatable part in terms of anybody's life experience is that you know if if you look from a third person point of view of where you are today, you kind of realize that oh my god, a lot has happened, and a lot will continue to happen. Obviously, the journey never ends. Um, but where we could start, actually, is in terms of influences and passions in life. That's usually, like, that's the core behind a lot of people, I think. That's a lot of behind their drive, behind their excitement in life. I guess, where are you from? Like, where you grew up? Like, what's the, what's the context here? My sort of main passions have always been software and startups. And a couple of thinkers or people were formative in my, you know, as I was a young student, uh, studying computer science, uh, I read sort of Mark Andreessen's essay on why software is eating the world, and that sort of uh, basically, you know, cemented the, the whole notion of software as being the most important thing in the next decade or century. And that was on the more software side. And the other passion I've always had is a passion for startups, and that was sort of inspired by Paul Graham, who is uh, who is the founder of Y Combinator, and uh, his essay on how to make wealth was really formative in my experience. Yeah, I mean, definitely prominent names. And you, when you mentioned Anderson and Paul Graham, obviously, like Paul Graham big on Twitter when he talks about any kind of topic. 
being able to actually um, expose to these kind of resources out there, that's already fantastic. Because I know personally, at least, like, I haven't really heard about these names, like, well later in my life. Um, how did you come across that, I guess? Like, in terms of what I mean by that is that, like, have you always grew up in a very techie, I guess, family or, like, techie influences? Have you always been exposed? Like, your dad would have pulled up a website and you'll be looking at it. Like, what did that look like? Yeah, I guess my experience, my personal life, I like to say that I grew up on the internet. So there was this meme at some point where everybody's posting like photos of video games, uh, like World of Warcraft or all these kinds of online role-playing games. And it's sort of, that was really formative in my upbringing. So I've always lived on the internet and the internet has shaped my worldview, my experiences. I consumed global, you know, information channels like TV, movies and so forth and all of these sort of basically you know uh that that sort of always told me that you know tech is really important and since it was such a core part of my life already i knew that i want to do or i would be interested in some of uh like this kind of area i, I love that you mentioned when there's games out there because like yes games even back then like people saw it in a very negative light even today you have the bad connotation of games but uh, at least when you mentioned that, you know, the stuff you learn, whatever the memes on World of Warcraft. Um, for me, I actually learned English through playing Maple Story. So Maple Story is a, you know, game way back then. And, uh, cause I, I grew up in Montreal, Canada. So for me, at least like my main languages, my parents spoke Cantonese at home. They don't, or they barely speak any English or French. And I grew up in a French elementary school and high school. So English was like a third thing, like this mysterious bit that came in. And as you play online video games, I think that was a straight benefit. You end up like just knowing how to write English better, hear English better at the end of the day. So um, did you grow up in the States then? Like, what was that story like? But yeah, in terms of uh, what you said about video games and so forth, I completely agree. So my, my own experience was with, like I mentioned already, World of Warcraft, where you would meet like people from all around the world they were not necessarily just from one place and you would just interact with so many people and learn about all, all their you know cultural backgrounds and certainly it would sharpen up your you know english and other other you know cultural skills so i would say that was you know my main main primary influence one thing i do actually like asking is it's already already good to hear about your context you know, this love this passion for technology this drive that you already had from young age and it just keeps on going and then there are, I guess there are people that discover it much later in terms of like, by the time you make a decision and whether high school or university, that's kind of where people realize that like, oh, wait, I got to make a choice here. I got to go into either uh, finance. I got to go into psychology. I got to go into blah, blah, blah. Like, how did your decision process make? At what point in your life did you say, uh, at least on the educational and academic side of it, at what point did you get into like a proper tech program? If you have actually. Yeah, yeah. So I think initially my whole passion was not necessarily tech, but it was more startups. Like I mentioned, Mark Henderson, Paul Graham, and so forth. I'd been reading them. I, think, uh, I can't even remember when I started reading them. It was in high school already. And even in high school, I was already engaged in various smaller entrepreneurial uh, projects, like working on a non-for-profit and things like that. Um, so I was always interested in entrepreneurship. It came very naturally to me. I was... Uh, even as a child, I was sort of leading the what the various communities around me. So that was always a part of my life. In terms of picking software specifically, it was um, that was certainly more in college where I, you know, I started off in product management, and uh, that was sort of maybe more on the business side. But over time, 
that sort of drew me to, okay, product management is interesting. It's about building startups, building the product. Uh, while the uh, elements of product management is sort of user experience, user interaction. And that was like a good overlap between, uh, yeah, that was a good entry point for me to getting into CS through this field of human computer interaction. And that was like my initial foray uh, into software specifically. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it sounds already relatable in terms of like, okay, well, if we dive into the bit where you're saying like very startup slash entrepreneur oriented, like that's fun to hear because not many people are able to, you know, realize that that's something that could guide them to, through life, at least. Um, I guess from the uh, contrast is that some people like, for example, I, I knew I played with computers like throughout my, my kid and whole life, like throughout my childhood and everything. And that was like, it wasn't a realization where it's like, oh yeah, I want to make this into my own business and like tackle the whole thing. It was more like, hey, look, it's cool to build this website. <laughs> it's cool to do that. So even though we do touch a lot of the very same thing, it's so good to hear somebody being like, oh yeah, you could do this. You could make this to help this out and build the pieces together. And that's obviously a combination of project management, engineering, like those kind of come together at the end of the day. So I kind of want to hear the process of getting into a proper, um, I guess uh, you said you did ComSci at the end of the day. How does one get into it? So when you were mentioning that uh, you kind of made a jump, right? That's kind of like a leap that, you know, a lot of people want to get into. What was the story of what did you prepare? Uh, who did you contact? Like, how did you get from where you were into a uh, university? I guess in the United States, which university was that? I went to the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, it's one of, uh, it's in the Midwest. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's one of the top top 20 or top 10 computer science programs in the United States. Yeah, that's amazing. So yeah, how did, how did that process start? Because I know my process of getting into computer science was a little bit jarring. Well, I didn't start in computer science. I started in health and physiology and math, sorry. And then I swapped into computer science. What, what, was, yours, uh, what was your perspective at that time? To be honest, I, I was just taking classes. I was exploring things. I was in this entrepreneurial residential learning community. So it was around people who are interested in entrepreneurship, interested in various areas. And it was pretty obvious pretty quickly that the most impactful uh, entrepreneurial like you know projects you could work on is going to be in software. And that was, uh, you know, I, that basically drew me to taking some computer science classes and getting a feel for it. And once I did that, I knew I had a strong knack for it. I did well in my classes and I, I was like pretty much at the top relative to everybody else around me. So uh, that that was pretty motivational in terms of, okay, this is like a place where I can excel. If it helped me with my broader goals of being in startups or working at startups or starting my own startups. So it was a pretty natural choice uh, from that perspective and I was getting started. Yeah, that's so cool to hear. And was it hard, I guess? I mean, given that you have already a really good background at that point of like, you know, being, being, having a good, at least academic record. I can't speak for that for myself. <laughs> um, uh, for the application process, was it hard? Because I think it was like an overseas application, like in terms of communication wise, was it all through email, through online? How did that system look like? Yeah, although that was pretty straightforward. I mean, you just take the standardized exams. I did decently on the uh, SATs and so forth. So once you do that, it's, not a big deal, just fill out the applications and so forth. So uh, that part was easy, I guess. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I would say um, it's not not the most inaccessible if you have a strong math computer science background. If you don't, then obviously it's a little bit more um, more challenging than uh, it would it would be otherwise. I mean, that's, that's why I like hearing about this, that like everybody has their own story and their own approach of doing it. And since you've done it successfully, it's always good to just hear it from your point of view in that case. So thanks for that. <laughs> 
Um, and in terms of like the lifestyle, I guess that was a jump, right? That's when you actually like after getting accepted, congratulations on that. Um, that was the point where you have to what get on a plane and then just live live your life in the states for a bit. Is that is that what happened then? Yeah, I mean to be honest, it was not that much of a jump for me. Like I said,、uh, I kind of grew up on the internet and. Uh, in terms of culturally and so forth, it was fairly straightforward. I I had a strong English background since pretty much I was born, so I spoke English at home as well. So that was kind of my first language to begin with. And yeah, once I once I jumped in, it was not that straightforward. It was pretty straightforward. I was able to build a strong community, social network. I was involved in clubs since day one almost. I was、uh, running clubs. I was executive member. In a bunch of them, and yeah, it was、uh, it was pretty pretty smooth sailing. Yeah, I'm so glad that you really got to embrace the whole experience of like joining different clubs and everything. Unfortunately, I kind of took it for granted. I didn't do that many clubs myself, so sorry for that.、Um, one thing that I actually love to hear about is when we talk about top ten computer science schools and all that kind of fun stuff. In terms of the topics topics itself,、um, so at least I went to McGill University. And I did a comp sci there, and the topics that we dove into like very very I guess Java heavy. So, but not well. I guess that's a language that we use. But in terms of like topics, we had a lot of algorithm classes. We had a lot of like operating system classes, database classes, and then you know, and then we have the year long project at the end. What were I guess the different topics that you covered in your university? Like for example, like if we start with the question like, oh, what language did most of it come in? It's probably funny that you mentioned that you use Java because I'm pretty sure、uh, Oracle did this at some point where they,、uh, like, they literally paid universities or did some some sort of marketing scheme where、uh, they were able to establish Java as the standard for teaching across pretty much every university. And yeah, I imagine for the same reason we ended up using Java as our main language, and it was always kind of weird because.、Um, It didn't necessarily have the best tooling.、Uh, maybe Python would have been a lot easier to understand or pick up as your first programming language.、Um, but yeah, I mean that was that was basically the standard, and we would use it even in classes like artificial intelligence, which was peculiar. But hey, I mean、uh, it, it's a decent language, and it's used used in many different contexts. So、um, yeah, it was not the worst, I guess. <laughs> Nobody has ever pointed this out to me that it. It was definitely a maybe lobbying effort from Oracle、yeah. to put <laughs> the Java in 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 everybody's hand during university. That is interesting, and like I'm、yeah. so glad that you brought that up.、Um, the amount of people who are suffering from using Eclipse and Java, like please. Yes, Eclipse. <laughs> Man, I mean that was just、uh, the the worst. I mean it was just like、yeah. the you're you're coding for the first time, and then they throw you at this this crazy IDE with all these buttons that you have no idea what they do. It's just、um, it's pretty overwhelming. Oh yeah, I mean, okay, fine. I'm not gonna get into it because it's gonna, <laughs> gonna leave more bad memories as we go. But I'm not saying that Java was 100 percent everything we use. I think you're in university, you do get exposed to like we did a、mm. bit of PHP, like C, Python. Those are all like very common stuff that you would find in CompSci programs. And I'm guessing that for yours, it was kind of similar, right? Most of it is Java, but you also got you got exposed to different stuff like web technologies or you know different classes that you wouldn't expect to to be exposed to. Yeah, I guess the classes were pretty standard. So I did take the core classes you would take:、um, data structures,、uh, machine organization. I took algorithms at Stanford while I was doing research there, so that was a fun experience. And otherwise, at Wisconsin, I took most of the basic classes, but I also took a lot of graduate courses、uh, towards the end of my、uh, time there because、um, I was interested in graduate work. I was doing research actively, so yeah, and、uh, it was a great opportunity to just get.、Uh, Involved in advanced computer science. Yeah, I definitely do want to get into the the research bit, especially like having the opportunity 
to be a research assistant because you do hear that when mm-hmm. you're in university. That's a very prominent thing. So I guess for the people that are less familiar, such as me, um, what is a research assistant and how, how do you become one? Research assistant, essentially, um, yeah, it's, these, these universities are research institutions. Like, uh, there's certainly an undergraduate component of it, where it's a lot of teaching, but the professor's primary job, when you're attending a school like the University of Wisconsin or any, like any major research school, uh, the professor's main job is research, not teaching. So that's a big part of the university. And uh, in terms of funding, in terms of the structure uh, of how they operate, and uh, University of Wisconsin was uh, was no different in this way. So all the professors, their main job was was actually research, and it's yeah. Uh, and the research assistant helps them with their research, uh, uh, as the name suggests. That totally makes sense. And um, I guess what what do you need to qualify as a research assistant? I'm assuming not everybody could become one, or else uh, they'll have like 700 research assistants every semester. <laughs> It depends on what you're interested in, I guess. Um, certainly, if you're interested in research or in the topics the professors work, it's a great, great, great way to get more exposure in that area. Uh, in terms of qualifications, it's not that crazy, I would say. It depends on the uh, professor again. So uh, my first research assistantship was in the HCI department, and it was focused on building like front-end stuff for one of the robotics systems they had. So it's building this... Uh, collaborative task authoring environment where you can create tasks for a robot and then it's a industrial robot that does various kinds of tasks like picking and and placing objects and so forth. So that was my first experience in being a research assistant and my background there was only I just done basic uh, web development stuff uh, using you know technologies like Angular, JavaScript uh, and so forth. Yeah, you make it sound so casual and easy. I'm so jealous of how you make it sound that it's so capable. Because that's one of the things that a lot of people are afraid of with the, at least the tech world. I'm like, I don't know how to do this. I don't, I don't know how to do any of this. But the way you kind of frame it and the mindset of, yeah, there are tools out there like Angular, React, whatever JavaScript you, framework you want to use out there to actually build stuff. Like they are out there. Did you have to learn that yourself or is, was that part of the curriculum while you're doing there because i do know that sometimes it's, hard, it's a hard mismatch or even the timing is hard that you're a research assistant but do you know how to build front end stuff like while well, doing like how did that actually work out yeah absolutely so i think that was definitely self-taught so i was doing a lot of side projects um i was building a website to help out one of my friends uh for her university in terms of like like she wanted a housing management system for a university and there were students, they, they needed a place to stay, and the university was did not necessarily provide a website, so I, I basically had to start with, with a website, and through that process, I learned how to build a website using uh, all these web technologies, and it was pretty much self-driven. And then the other piece I would also say is that I had a, a one of my good friends was already working in this research lab, so he knew me, and he knew I had all the skills, so he also helped me uh, uh, get, get a foot in the door. It's so good that when we look back, you see how these like different pieces like somehow just ended up working together. And like next thing you know, like that just obviously left a really good impact from what you do today, obviously, and uh, what happened back then. So <laughs> at least one of the one of the better lessons that I keep on hearing and telling at the end of the day is that, yes, you could be in a very tech intense university program, but there's a lot of stuff that if you do on your own, on your spare time to learn and, you know, push whatever knowledge that you have, that has such a big impact in terms of the different opportunities that you have. So same thing for me, like, I think a lot of the web technologies I learned that like on my own. And then I think essentially that's basically what 
got me like a full-time job. So <laughs> shout out to Meteor JS. I don't know anybody who still uses that or anything, but that was a really impactful one for my life. Even though people rip on it all the time, it uh, it, it made its mark. <laughs> um, I I want to ask about this um, Stanford experience within your um, University of Wisconsin experience. I know that is interesting in terms of like. Was that intentional? Was that accidental? Was there a research assistant like idea behind it? Like what what happened there? It's funny that you mentioned, and certainly like when we're going back, it's it's interesting to observe all this in hindsight. But certainly there's a path of dependence to all of this. Where if I never, if this friend of mine had never you know referred me to this job in the research department of Wisconsin, I wouldn't have gotten the the job or the position at Stanford, and then. If I hadn't gone to Stanford, then the next thing would have happened to it. So it's like this chain reaction uh, in which we trace things. And along the same lines, that's how I got the position or got into the Stanford thing where, yeah, I was interested in research. And basically my professor at Wisconsin knew a professor at Stanford and he referred me to her. And that was another research position in this in a similar area. but in this this position, I was focused less on front-end development, more building like an end-to-end robotic system. And it was quite an interesting project. It was, uh, uh, it was defined as a multi-robot interaction project where we were studying the interactions of people and chairs and multiple chairs and also building a multi-robotic system around that. So it was a pretty, pretty fun uh, project at the outset. So I was really excited to... Uh, to take the position when I was offered it. Yeah, I mean, it sounds so hands-on as well. I think <laughs> I think that's one of the most exciting things that, I mean, at least sometimes you'll hear the stereotypes of, oh yeah, I'm doing a research project on blah, blah, blah. And it's just like sending out surveys and getting replies from it. And people, I mean, I think like people generalize that to a lot of things. At least I do, which is a terrible habit. So I'm sorry to all the, <laughs> all the proper academics out there. Um, was that on-site actually? Did you end up living near Stanford? Yeah, yeah, that was another great part of it because uh, I it was it was on site at Stanford, so I was at Stanford for that that whole summer, and yeah, I also ended up taking a course there, like you mentioned, along along with other things, other activities that typically do happen at Stanford. So yeah, it was a, it was a great experience in in the sense of like like how you mentioned right where people are thinking about where they fit into the world, and one of the things that's very hard to know is like how do you stack up or rank up against the very best? And for me, going to Stanford was basically about that was how can I, like if I compare myself to the very best, how, how, or how do I, how do I rank up essentially? And that, that I would say was very formative in my experience. Oh, yeah. And I'm pretty sure that's kind of where you felt uncomfortable in terms of like, oh, wow, like overwhelmed by how much knowledge, knowledge and power out there. No, I'm kidding. Um, But no, I'm kidding. For sure, Stanford, like it's not too far from well where I live at the moment. I'm in San Francisco. So Stanford, like you definitely do meet people from around here that did go to Stanford and brilliant, brilliant, brilliant minds at the end of the day. Um, and I guess when you're talking about the influence, like at least that's one of the appeal of being in the in the Bay Area. That's probably one thing that I keep on saying is that, you know, the rate of bumping into people that think like that, then sure, it's higher and kind of get the influence. I didn't ask this, but where are you based today? Because I feel like that helps a lot with the context. And certainly like uh, how you mentioned on the previous thing was, I agree with that. It can be pretty overwhelming when you you arrive at a place like the Bay Area or Stanford, where there's lots of crazy people. Uh, like I was 
the first train ride I took in the Bay Area, there was some guy solving some esoteric math problems uh, with other people. And you hear, and this is completely crazy and you never see this in any other place. So that's that's an overwhelming aspect. But at the other at the other end of it, you also realize how much of this is hype and prestige and sort of a lot of fluff. And that is a little bit more, um, I don't know, at least motivational or has been for me, which is that uh, things can look a lot more scary from the outside than they are from the inside. So if, if, if uh, people are overwhelmed by some of these places, certainly I would encourage them to uh, not be so uh, uh, demotivated or, or uh, scared by the prestige. And uh, I would encourage them to actually take a look there. Um, but currently I'm based off of uh, Orange County, Irvine. So that's the current location I'm in. That's where the headquarters for Unreal Industries is based. And um, yeah, it's kind of a funny place to be. Um, but uh, it's sort of like the the South Bay in terms of uh, the experience. It's a residential neighborhood. You can travel to Los Angeles, which is kind of like traveling from the South Bay to San Francisco. And yeah, it's mostly, you know, uh, just it's literally just Unreal and nothing else here. <laughs> So it's kind of an oasis. <laughs> that, that totally makes sense. <laughs> just, uh, I mean, yeah, just seeing different parts of the world. Because as you were saying, like, you really get to, you know, see every bit, that we're, at least in Wisconsin, even checking out the bit in the Bay Area. And even now today, having a lot of exposure, a little bit more south, uh, south of California. That's always fascinating. Um, one of the actually other really interesting points during university life is internships. I feel like research assistant, does that count as internships? Or did you actually do any other internships during that time? Yeah, so at the when I was at Stanford, I was a research intern. So they do have internships over the summer. So that was kind of what I ended up doing. And I was doing a couple of them at the same time alongside the course. So I was pretty overwhelmed already. Uh, so certainly I didn't do a third internship uh, uh, that summer. However, I did intern at Facebook the next summer, which was also an exciting experience in terms of being at maybe like one of the world's best technology firms with a, and, and interfacing with billions of users. So that's the other thing I ended up doing during my university experience. Like that's always fun to hear because everybody has like different, I guess, really good internship experience and some people don't just have like terrible ones or none. Um, so how, how did that come about? Was it just like a career fair thing where you were just passing by and they actually had a booth set up and they're like, oh yeah, come come spend your summer at an internship Facebook. Like how did, how did that all? Uh... One of the funny things about my experience is that I've never gotten a job through a career fair or an application. So I, I literally have never gotten a job through through applying or through career fair. So uh, even the Facebook uh, job, I got through a referral actually. And that's how I got the, the, the indoors. That's actually so good to hear because I do know a lot of people get demotivated by it. And at the end of the day, like, yes, it's going to be tough no matter what. Whether it's a career fair, whether you reach out on your own, um, it's going to be really tough. Uh, I've probably sent over like hundreds and hundreds of applications. Till today, I've I've sent like way, way, way more than I think I should have. But referral is always, I guess, super important, right? I think all these companies have piles of resumes that's lying around. And no matter how good they advertise their machine learning or AI technology to be, I don't think they have any idea of how to sort through resumes. So they literally have no idea. Like they're basically lost. And uh, it's a pile of resumes. They don't know who is good or who is decent, who's bad. And really that's the problem they're facing. And when, when they get a referral, it's 
it's a way to get out of the pile really and that's the challenge you're facing when at least initially when you're trying to get a job in these companies um once you're in it's quite different um uh yeah so but but that's that's the initial initial upward battle of course, the game of keywords. I think I think I've probably talked about this before. Game of keywords is where you just throw in as many keywords as you can inside of your CV or resume or whatever it is. But that's for another day of topics. I could dive into that for like another two hours into it. And it's just going to be way more um, useful at that point. But what is actually cool is, um, was that on-site as well then? Was the internship at Facebook on-site? That was another crazy part of being, you know, intern at Facebook, which was like, uh, there's this movie called The Internship where they basically go over the life of Google interns. Yeah, and you hear all these ridiculous stories. I, I really like the Social Network movie as well. So once I received my job offer, the first thing I rewatched is the Social Network movie and Mark Zuckerberg to get myself hyped. But uh, yeah, you watch all these movies and actually living through it is pretty wild, especially Facebook because it's kind of like Disneyland. So it's not necessarily, a, it's not your typical workplace where you go to work, you, I don't know, uh, for many most industries, like you have to dress up and wear business casual, and then show up at nine a, nine a.m., leave at five p.m., and blah blah blah, and all that. Right? Uh, Facebook was more like going to a Disneyland where there's free food, there's literally colorful buildings, there's no uh, there's no rules necessarily, minimal process, and uh, yeah, you work with the, some of the very best people. So it's it's it was a pretty wild experience. Um, when I was first getting started. So that was uh, a lot of fun. Even from a like perspective of like a university student, just going through that, of course, you're going to be absorbing a lot of it and just seeing, oh, wow, there's this part of the, I guess, the world, the industry that kind of looks like that. And if I'm not mistaken, the Facebook headquarters, that's based in Palo Alto? Close. It's in Menlo Park. <laughs> their, one of their buildings is, I think, uh, actually a historic building. Uh, the Sun Microsystems, one of the legendary software company. And that's more of the, it looks like it's quite colorful. They have like uh, fairs there. So there's like actually student, uh, intern, intern fairs where they have like games and so forth. So they literally do dress that part of as Disneyland. But then there's also a larger building uh, right across the street from it, which is uh, where Mark Zuckerberg sits and some of the newer uh, newer offices are based off of. Yeah, that's so fun to hear because, I mean, obviously Menlo Park, the area, I think very close to Apple Park as well and all the Google stuff and everything. So <laughs> they're all over there. And then um, as you were saying, like even just spending the summer in the Bay Area, just being checked out, oh, wow, this technology, these kind of people exist. Like that must be transformative in terms of how you just tackle problems in the long run. So um, one thing that um, might actually be helpful for, I guess, like just anybody listening is what was, I guess, the the technology that you were working with during your internship? Like what was the, I mean, obviously you have like a project assigned Kind of thing but what did that look like yeah i, I guess i was working on the uh, newsfeed integrity team so uh, it's a newsfeed product obviously it's a product that i think pretty much everybody is familiar with uh, it's used by billions of people and my focus was more on uh, building ranking algorithms for that product and um, yeah it was a lot of data science cmle work where you have models you have ranking algorithms and you're analyzing data. There's a lot of SQL, SQL related things where you're building queries, you're building dashboards and so forth. That was a huge chunk of that internship. And the, the newsfeed integrity's goal is to improve the integrity of the newsfeed, which is reduce harmful data, reduce bias and uh, so forth. And basically build a more trustworthy experience for the Facebook's user base. 
So that was more on the data science side. I also did some product work in terms of building uh, some features for the product. Uh, I built a ranking system, uh, sorry, a mapping system for mapping articles to some context. So you would, if you see an article on your newsfeed, you would click on it and get some background information. What is, uh, yeah, what is this article about? Maybe, maybe provide some information about the publisher and so forth. And, uh, most of it leveraged, uh, like I already mentioned, SQL, which was, uh, you know, query language uh, for databases uh, and leveraged most of the Facebook tools internally. Uh, they have a tool for machine learning called FB Learner Flow, which is what we use for the models. And on the product side, it was a lot of PHP essentially, which is, or, or hack, which is, uh, and the name is not, not a misnomer there. It's literally a hack. So uh, that was, that was also fun. Yeah, 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 I've definitely heard of Hack, actually. That is their own proprietary, uh, I think it's, they, they built it on top of PHP or something like that. I definitely, I definitely know they the, have- The Hack very... PHP, it's a, it's a hack. <laughs> yeah. It's a hack for PHP, so uh, at least they're being honest about it. <laughs> yeah, no, and at least they, they're not going to mistake it for anything else. Um, <laughs> exactly. That's great, knowing that, yes, even the internal tools, like, they could leverage it, and, like, uh, you already having a lot of, I guess- hands-on experience with SQL. Like a lot of people don't get, you know, too much of that during university. Like, yeah, you learned about it in, in computer science classes, database classes, but in terms of actually being hand-on and what you're probably getting exposed into millions and millions and millions of datas and entries, that is obviously so much more useful because it's very practical. And then you end up getting some results. And then as you're saying, if you're going to use that to improve certain ML models, then, you know, it's, it's definitely the putting it in practice part as opposed to just like all theory at the end of the day. So... <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Facebook certainly has, you know, one of the best data sets in the whole world. So getting, being able to run SQL on that is really uh, fascinating because uh, you can, uh, really the, the applications are endless. And yeah, I think that's the, the, the lesser spoken side of Facebook is that not only do they do that bit, but they, when we talk about Hack, when we talk about React, when we talk about all these like actual tech heavy projects that it's not going to affect any I guess daily user on Facebook, like they don't care about how React is built, right? Uh, but they have a very high group of people that maintain all these projects that are tools for other developers. And like, that's the lesser spoken side. But I mean, <laughs> I think that's going to be a, a big, big thing to dive into. Like, I'm pretty sure this is a common thing where uh, they offer residence, not residence, but they, they basically have like a somewhere for you to live right during the summer when, when you go there for an internship. They cover pretty much your housing, your food, your transportation, and so forth. They even reimburse, uh, yeah, certain things like uh, Lyft sometimes if you're going to an event or something. So it's pretty comprehensive in terms of compensation and all that. Yeah, and obviously that that's going to make your life a bit easier and the whole transition of like focusing on actually being great at whatever you're working on. I think that's uh, appealing. So, hey, obviously, anybody out there who's uh, putting out there, put the effort, try to get yourself an internship in a university because I think it's going to be super beneficial <laughs> for everybody at the end of the day. Um, but, yeah, like, I feel like we talk about so much about just the background and the academic, and that really helps you with, you know, what you do today. What was the transition like? How do you, how we got how do we got to Andrew today, basically? Like, big congrats, you graduated there, and you did all these amazing internships and everything. How did you make the next jump then? I guess the main way I was thinking about it was I already had a job offer from Facebook and I had a safe job from a big tech company. And that was sort of like something I could put at the back of my head saying, Hey, whatever happens, I have this and everything's going to be fine in the worst case. So that was uh, the starting point. And then my goal was, okay, what can I do or how can I do better? What are the ways in which I can, you know, increase my impact even more? 
and again, going back to sort of my real passion for startups, uh, I wanted to really, you know, see, see how it is in a fast growing startup and a high impact startup and whether finding, you know, or working for, for a startup. And that was sort of the starting point. And I followed this venture capital firm called Founders Fund. Uh, I'm a big fan of them. Uh, and they've invest, they were the first investors in Facebook uh, already. So I knew uh, some of their work or I was familiar with some of the outputs they produce. They're also key investors in other top startups like Stripe, Palantir, um, Lyft and, you know, Oculus and the, the, the list goes on and on. So I knew that whenever they invest in a company, at least their philosophy is that when they make an investment, they make a high conviction investment. They make a concentrated investment, meaning that their bets are most like are much likelier to pay off than some of the other venture capital firms, which are a lot more spray and pray approach. Um, so when I knew that, you know, a company is backed by Founders Fund, you can be sort of confident that, or with at least higher confidence that it's going to do well. And uh, so I was tracking uh, Founders Fund and one of the companies that made investment was this company called Unreal, which had a really amazing founding team. It was Palmer Lucky, who had built Oculus and sold in Facebook. It was Brian Schimpf, who was director of engineering in Palantir, and Trey Stephens, who was a partner at Founders Fund. So when I saw that kind of founding team, being backed by Founders Fund, I just knew that it's going to be a really, really successful company. And knowing all of that, I, I applied to Unreal. And yeah, that's that's how I got my step into the door. Yeah, the, the, the level of uh, DD, <laughs> the level of due diligence we even jumped into, that is actually phenomenal because you, you've made connections, right? In terms of not actual like human connections, but in terms of like, oh, just because you have these uh, different parts these different points and then you're able to link them together and kind of realize that hey look this is brewing and this is going to be a great adventure going from there that is so great to hear that i mean till today that's probably what you're living at the moment so now that we got a bit of context in terms of like what did you apply for uh and what do you do i guess what was your role today basically yeah absolutely uh i also did like how you mentioned that uh it was a lot about connecting the dots and I think that's a key pattern for how you build startups. So when you, when I analyze why Unreal is successful, it's because they connected all these pieces in a way that really made sense and were really powerful. So they had, they were able to form this really exceptional team, but they were also connecting the dots on the technological side. So they were leveraging off new com- incoming technologies like IOT. So NVIDIA was really launching, uh, you know, their, their IOT platforms for edge compute really recently, only in 2017, they were also leveraging sort of, uh, the newfound interest in defense technology and, and so forth. So it was really about connecting all these pieces. And that's a, I think a key pattern that one must keep in mind when you're building a startup. And in terms of the things I work on right now, my main focus is actually platform infrastructure and, um, I think you mentioned previously where one of the underrated aspects of Facebook is actually most of the tools you use is internally built. It's, and that enables like really fast, rapid developer velocity. I remember working at Facebook, I didn't have to do any kind of setup. My laptop was fully set up. It had all the tools. I didn't have to install any software. I have to compile any software. Everything was in the cloud. You just open up your ID. They have a custom ID. Inside the custom ID, you can write your code. Once the code is done, you compile it, it's sent to the cloud and it's you know automatically deployed and so forth. So that's the re- real secret sauce, I think, behind these really successful tech companies is that they build very high quality infrastructure. And uh, along the same lines, my, my current focus is pretty much to do the same, uh, is to 
build that kind of infrastructure that will rapidly accelerate developer velocity. Yeah, and I could definitely say developers are the harshest critic out there. Absolutely. Um, as, as, as many times you want to say that uh, customers are harsh out there. Yes, of course, customers are harsh. They're, they're the one that fills your vaults at the end of the day. But appealing to developers and engineers out there, man, I, I can imagine the absolute hurdles you got to go through uh, <laughs> to satisfy yeah. those needs. Uh, certainly one of the skills I've had to develop is uh, going through some of those hurdles because engineers are very opinionated about things, about ways of doing things, about uh, what is the better tool. And certainly the programming language wars is case in point in this. Um, so there's certainly like, you know, a key part of my strategic repertoire is uh, how to deal with these things. And uh, yeah, and uh, that's been my focus uh, so forth. Uh, on the other hand, I would also say that uh, a lot of my focus recently has been on sort of defining products and uh, sort of going through the design architecture of them. Uh, I, I, I lead a, some, our work around simulation infrastructure. And one of the things I've learned is that uh, certainly they're software engineers, but they're also normal people at the end of the day. So general products, product thinking continues to apply. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. We're all human at the end of the day. Um, and in terms of putting a lot of like color into all this, like this is great because Andrew, in terms of like the requirement to actually be able to build all these software and all these infrastructure that supports it, like I'm pretty sure it's very, very expensive. One thing that I personally just don't know is what is the product of Andrew? Because we mentioned a couple of times, like, yes, we're building these infrastructure for people to dev on everything. What is it? What exactly is the product? Is it a hardware product? Is it a software product? Is it both? Um, help me out here because I'm definitely, <laughs> I'm obviously uh, loving to know more about it. I guess Underreal is a defense company that builds both hardware and software products. So we have, our product line includes something called the Sentry Tower, which is a tower. It's um, solar powered. You can place it in locations. It has various sensors on top of it, like radar, Electro-optical, which is camera and so forth. And you, it does edge sensor fusion and you can sort of, which basically means detect targets and track them. That is one, one, one product. The other product we have is something called the ghost, which I've been working on pretty closely uh, for a while. But, um, essentially what that does is, uh, uh, again, it's a, it's a, it's a drone, it's a portable drone and you can sort of pack it up in a case. It's modular. You can put various different kinds of payload on it. And it comes with lots of autonomy algorithms, which is another area I focused on quite a bit. And also like our, our lattice platform, which is our the core core software backbone. Yeah, my yeah, my goodness, just because I love hearing about this world of hardware and software. As you as you start listing them, because like when you when you talk about a lot of the tech companies out there, like some of them are purely purely sorry, purely software. So it's straight up just you know, web interfaces or backend programs that kind of run and then it kind of makes all the stuff together. But then very rare that you get a very fascinating, like you have self-driving cars and everything, sure. Um, but when you talk about physical infrastructures of towers that you're building and then you have these like drones that you're building as well, like your background though, how did, how did that help you not be afraid of jumping into something like this? Because somebody that comes from, I guess, a software engineering background, they'll be like, oh, how, like, how do you, what code do you write? What language do you write to, to put this all together? So I guess what, how is it linked together? Is it, is it written in a specific language? Like the hardware, is it like specific? Did you guys have to build your own, I guess, boards to actually be, uh, be able to function all this? Like how does, how does that whole thing work? These are all the questions I got in my head right now. 
uh, I'm not sure I can comment on the specifics of how Unruh does stuff, but in the general case, um, you know, it is part of this broader, um, broader, uh, like, let's say, wave of sensors. I think it was even Eric Schmidt who's pitching like, okay, what is the next big thing? It's going to be sensors because you're going to have an explosion in sensors and everything's going to have sensors soon enough. So it, it, is a, it is part of that wave where you have this IoT or sensor explosion. And there are other companies that have uh, focused on, on IoT and sensors like Samsara, which, which integrates sensors for uh, logistics or uh, even Google, Microsoft, these companies also have IoT platforms. So that's the broader wave, I think, where you can sort of think about, and self-driving cars are also part of this wave where you have a car that has, you know, uh, an internet connection in it. It has a computer, uh, you ride a Tesla and you, you understand what this means. So uh, that's how I think about it in a broad sense. And uh, certainly we can dive a lot more into details of how uh, these IoT uh, platforms or systems are built. I mean, that's all super great to hear because I know at least in the back of my head is that when uh, I use technology, so for example, if I'm building a project and I have to use React or whatever, like that translates quite easily, obviously on a screen, but then when it's trying to translate to a hardware, like God knows how the, the, the gear shifts inside a car is going to react to that, right? So that's always fascinating. And I guess with the technologies that you still use nowadays, like you're building a lot of like infrastructure, but also uh, other other different parts of it. Is it still mostly, um, what, JavaScript-based, or is there other technologies like Go, Rust, uh, Java that you, you touch quite often? I guess one of, the, one of the interesting things about Unreal is that I like to say that we have everything but blockchain. So uh, we, we really do have a full, full variety of things ranging from perception, machine learning, front-end, back-end, hardware, sensors, and literally anything you can think of in the, in the software space, we basically have, we have autonomy as well. So, uh, that basically means that you have a broad variety of technologies. And in terms of my own experience, I've had the privilege to work on almost all of these aspects. So I've touched front end infrastructure, which is react based, done, uh, I've done a lot of backend work, which is go based and C++ based, I've done some autonomy work, which is also C++ based perception work, which is C++-based, hardware work, which is NVIDIA Tegra-based, Linux-based. Uh, so there's a, yeah, I've personally been able to work with pretty much the entire spectrum. I also did machine learning in the beginning. So I literally did everything at, at Unreal. So uh, there's, there's a lot, lot to uh, talk about here. Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating because I think like even the many, many engineers I've gotten the absolute pleasure to talk to over the years is that this this, like, there's no fear of learning new languages. There's no fear of learning new tooling just because that's how the world is. Um, you, can't, you can't have everything written in a single C++, C++ language, for example. Like, you need this combination of different you know, framework languages. And the, the idea of being agnostic to all of them, I feel like that's quite prominent. And I'm actually really, really glad that you're able to, you know see all sides of it even linux like being able to touch a lot of that stuff and like writing a lot i guess probably a lot of bash in there as well um that is i mean at least for a personal developer you know experience and growth that is definitely part of your journey so super 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 fun to hear about that no i completely agree i think you already mentioned in the past where certainly uh you know that's how you got your first gig with self-learning um gs and it was similar for me and being a software engineer really means to you have to be an autodidact which is a self-learner and if you're uh, if that if you're not able to do that then it can be a pretty tricky job to be um, the other thing i would say though is that one of the things that helps 
for example, learn people programming languages is that um, there really are a few core concepts that are very generally applicable across all of them. For example, you can learn about static versus dynamic typing. That's sort of, that's already like a huge enough uh, concept that applies to pretty much every language and it gives you a good understanding of how these languages operate. And then there's also other aspects like, uh, uh, like memory models and how, how you think about those. So when, once you get those core ideas, which you can really get from programming language classes at universities, um, once you, once you grok those four core concepts, picking up the new syntax is, uh, is not that hard. Um, so I would say that's the key. And finally, when you're sort of building a startup, uh, I would encourage people to, on the one hand, not, not force everybody to use JavaScript for literally everything, which people do, and it can be quite problematic. Um, but on the other hand, I would also encourage people to not have 20 different languages and have every developer write their software in their own favorite language, because uh, that will really reduce the velocity of your organization and it will really hamper the ability of engineers to collaborate with each other. And yeah, so uh, I, would, I would pick a happy medium of a few, three or four core languages, which are, which solve like, you know, really big problems in your organization and, and stick with those and force everybody to use those. Um, that would be the advice. That's great. Cause when you're seeing on a high level of understanding the concepts, Definitely put your attention to that. <laughs> whoever's studying computer science, whoever's working in computer science is uh, whatever, even the data model behind a lot of this stuff and understanding. This, this is where we get into a bit of like the architecture design, right? Like, why are we modeling it this way? How does that go? And that has a much bigger impact compared to like how the for loops are syntactically different between all the different language. Like, sure, you can write for loops 60 million different ways. It's kind of doing the same. But when we're talking about like the actual, you know, um, like the dynamic typing, even like object oriented, depending if you require that kind of stuff, that's way more important. At least in my opinion, some people might agree, disagree, but that's uh, the fun part about these conversations because a lot of people talk about it. <laughs> um, one, um, the other thing that was actually, I think I'm still have a cloud over my head in terms of like when we talk about software infrastructure specifically. So you really get the chance to build a lot of it. What is included into that? Is that is that just like when we're talking about, for example, the tooling, the dev developer experience? Um, a lot of these other keywords that pop into my head is like uh, the the CI CD flow, um, the the I guess you were saying the internal tools to do X Y and Z. Like, what does that look like from from your perspective? Is what is software infrastructure? Because I know a lot of people have different definitions for it. One quote I like uh, to use when I think about this is this line from. Uh... Uh, Sir Isaac Newton, where he's, he basically says something like, if I've seen farther, it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. And I think software infrastructure is essentially something like those shoulders or the giants on which, you know, uh, you have to stand, or it's kind of like a platform uh, on which you can sort of uh, stand and build better applications. Uh, we already like mentioned or alluded to this where when I was working at Facebook, I didn't have to reinvent the wheel. I just had all this infrastructure at, at my behest that I could just apply and be more effective. And in a similar sense, I think software infrastructure is basically software that you write that makes it cheaper for other developers to solve hard problems or build their own applications. So it's really, uh, uh, you could think of it as software for other software engineers. And uh, that sort of creates this compounding or platform effect that can be really a uh, really really huge step change in uh, the quality of outputs of an organization 
I like that definition of it because, uh, I mean, first of all, thank you. Thank you to all the people who build tools for developers, <laughs> whether it's uh, open source or within a company kind of thing. Uh, those are definitely useful. And um, and how do you, what, what I'm trying to figure out is how do you know what to build? Because I know like most of the time when in a daily, like, okay, I'm doing software engineering, I'm writing code and all that, there are recurring stuff that comes up and I complain a lot about, and then you try to hope that there's a solution out there. Is that the approach that you've taken in terms of knowing what to build, or is there like another way to tackle this? Yeah, that's a good question, and uh, certainly this is a this could this is like a, a topic in itself. You could focus on this for hours, but I've been thinking about this a lot recently as a technical lead uh, uh, type person at Unreal because my job is to is precisely to do what you just said, which is find the highest value areas uh, that developers are you know struggling with, find their actual needs and sort of try to satisfy them. Um, the framework I like to use, uh, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar or uh, others might be familiar with this person called uh, Clayton Christensen. Uh, he likes to use this concept called jobs to be done. And uh, it's essentially like the idea is, you know, when you're thinking about what are the needs of a customer, you try to think of it in terms of what are the jobs they need to get done. Um, so uh, as an example, uh, the example Clint Christensen provides is he's sort of analyzing uh, or he's been hired to analyze McDonald's. He's, tried to, he's been hired to increase their revenue for their product line. And he's looking at uh, their milkshakes and he's trying to figure out, okay, what is the need uh, the milkshake has? And he basically analyzes it and finds out that milkshake or people are buying milkshake only in the mornings uh, as they go to work. It's kind of peculiar. It's a milkshake. Why are they doing that? And he, when he digs more, he finds out that the job that the milkshake does for them is uh, it helps fill their bellies while on being a commute. And it's fairly cheap and it's you, you can drink it while you're driving. So it's solving a job of, uh, of the customer that they want to fill their bellies before they reach work. So that is the kind of framework I've been trying to develop. Uh, in terms of understanding what are the various jobs that need to get done, at least on a high level. And then you can obviously drill down into, okay, uh, how do you categorize these jobs, which are the high value jobs, which are the unmet jobs and so forth. Yeah, that's so fascinating because, uh, yeah, there's always a job that needs to be done. <laughs> um, do you have any, like, I guess, concrete examples of people, like, not complaining about it. I guess like engineers complain about it. Like, do you have any, I guess, just recent ones? Not even recent ones, but some of that you've seen across your career of very common engineers complain points? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, there's certainly uh, maybe two categories here. One is that engineers have complaints, but on the other end, it's also uh, more positive. So there's negative and positive improvements. Negative is that people have complaints and you wanna provide them a tooling that solves their complaints. And then there's positive, which is that uh, they might not have complaints, but things would be a lot better. And both of those are important and not necessarily, um, yeah, and not necessarily mutually exclusive, but uh, you can broadly think of uh, developer needs in those two categories. Um, in terms of examples on the complaint side, one of the things I personally experience is a lot around build, uh, getting your stuff built, getting it tested and so forth. That is a huge headache. Some, some languages have that very, very easy. So in Go, it's it just all works out of the box. You don't think about anything. In C++, it's it's basically a nightmare and there's no standard tool for it. 
and uh, uh, part of my uh, one of the things I did end up doing uh, focusing on on a lot is improving our C++ build infrastructure. That's on the more negative side. On the positive side, uh, a lot of what you can do when you're building platform infrastructure is um, really think about what what will you know allow an application to, or or an application developer to test their software faster. One example is when you're building front end front ends, you really have all these workflows, and the workflows need to have various data streams that support them in the back end. So you can build a lot of uh, automated back end tooling that can enable automated testing of the front end, and this can improve the iteration cycles that front end developers have. Uh, those are two examples uh, of you know uh, software infrastructure pain pains. Those are definitely relatable for people that are, I guess, currently working in software engineering because the amount of times that, you know, whether you want to put it on staging before prod or even like, oh, you just want to release like whatever blue green deploys, like, yo, you just want to put 5% of the use on a new one. Like those are hard problems to solve, but it improves like developers life at the end of the day. So, and then when you're talking about velocity, being able to see your changes, like deployed with the proper integrations with the proper like api calls outside like those are really hard to deal with and yeah i'm glad that you know you get to look into all of that whether it's like a reactive response in terms of people complaining about it or like an active you know oh what if we do this it's going to be better for everybody so um one of the most fascinating tools that i do want to mention i don't know if you actually do build anything similar is like in all the all the prettiers and all the uh, formatting, the code formatting ones, some, like somehow it's, it seems so simple, but they managed to find a way to make it super useful for devs. So um, that's something I just wanted to throw in there for, uh, in terms of, you know, dev tools that help people. One of the words that um, actually gets thrown around a little bit, I don't know if you could consider it as part of software infrastructure, but the word tech debt, like, does that fit anywhere in this whole thing? Or is it just, you know, a fancy word that I threw out that is not completely related to software infrastructure. Yeah, I think there's certainly one coupling in which, it, or one way in which it is related. So uh, certainly every organization accumulates tech debt. And one of the things I think about a lot when we are architecting systems is that you want to, if you're a fast growing company, you're going to have tech debt. And then the question is not how to find ways to pay back that tech debt, but rather how you can make the debt that's accumulated to be relatively cheap. And uh, what I mean by that is essentially, or at least how that translates into uh, architecture or infrastructure is that when you're building infrastructure, you want the components of the infrastructure to be loosely coupled. So, uh, so for example, if you're building some sort of it's already, let's work with the formatting tool that you mentioned. Let's say I want to build a better formatting tool and that maybe that's going to be high value. Maybe it won't be. I don't know. It's hard to know because the company is growing so fast. It's so many changing variables. But the worst thing I can do there is make the formatting tool tightly coupled with everything else. So let's say I build uh, another deployment system that's somehow really dependent on this formatting tool. And if the formatting tool changes or is, or is crappy, that basically means that everything else doesn't work anymore. That is a bad design. Rather, what you want is you want to build a formatting tool in a way that is loosely coupled with the rest of the system where, okay, if the formatting tool you later on realize is, is crappy and is not good and you want to throw it away, you should be able to do that in a cheap manner without affecting the rest of the system. So uh, I would say that's, that's how you, at least I think about uh, tech debt in fast-growing companies like startups. 
that is, uh, I, I think that is more useful, I guess, even for myself, just hearing about that, because everybody talks about tech dev in terms of how you tackle it, how you minimize it, how you qualify, quantify, like everybody wants to solve it. And as you were saying, like you can't really run away from it. <laughs> it just exists wherever you live. Um, the word startup, the word in terms of, because like I, my whole career, I've worked in startups, well, mostly startups. Um, that is completely different beast than obviously the big cores, the big, the big ones that are already established. So this environment of tension and hypergrowth and uncertainness and all that. Let's let's talk about that a little bit because I feel like this is definitely the the best place to do it. And then um and even if we talk about the engineering process behind a startup, because startups obviously have multiple parts. You gotta be able to have a product, have the engineering side, have the marketing side, have the business side and all of it. Um let's let's put into perspective a bit. Like what would you consider I guess a startup because what would you describe before like you were employee 47 now it's like 500 plus like how would you yeah how would you describe a startup no i think that's uh, i think you hit the point or the uh, the key of the definition already which is uh, you mentioned that it was 40 cent employees two years ago now it's more than 500 employees so i think a startup is pretty much a company that is designed to grow fast and uh, essentially that is the key or the crux of a startup and the only sort of ammunition you have in this process is momentum. And uh, you kind of have to rely on letting the momentum flow into itself and keep compounding that way. So at least that's one, one metaphor or definition I use for startups. Uh, the other aspect of this is I think of startups as kind of like telling a story because certainly you have this rapid growth aspect, but it's also coupled with, you know, starting from nothing. I mean, there was literally nothing there uh, a few years ago and now you have something. And the way you make that happen is uh, by thinking about startups uh, as a story or a film that you're producing. And each stage is kind of like you reveal more of the story and there's going to be a finale, there's a genesis. And and I guess I'm currently in the middle of the story at Unreal and I don't, don't yet know how it's going to end, but hopefully it's a wild ride. Yeah, even throwing the word Genesis out there, I absolutely love it because I feel like a lot of people that are part of the uh, startup world, that's always something that, you know, comes up once in a while. Uh, the story is never uncertain, it's never fully written. And um, when you were mentioning even just hypergrowth, like, yeah, sure, you'll have startups that they all of them do strive for the hypergrowth, but obviously it doesn't always end up happening that way. So hearing it from your perspective of actually being part of this hypergrowing phase, uh, fortunately, I think we, like at the company I work at currently, Notable, uh, we are in that phase as well. So it's, you know, so many faces that you see popping on everywhere. It's like, oh, wow, like, is this actually happening? And we're not only talking about engineer faces. Like, of course, you'll have new engineers coming along, but it's literally any part of the business. So as I was saying, like sales, you know, more product, more more uh, customer facing, like they all come together at the same time. And that's kind of where, the, you know, I guess it's addiction for people in the startup world. Is that, would you would you agree that people in startups, they they like it for this reason or... <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think uh, it is absolutely addicting. And um, I think that's critical, though, when you're a startup founder and thinking about, okay, how do I be successful? If you don't have that growth story, things can fall apart pretty quickly. And uh, the reason for this is uh, there's all these feedback loops that are built in. So when you announce a round, everybody hears about it, everybody's hyped. And it's not just... Uh, sort of future engineers hearing about storing. It's uh, like you mentioned, like business people, product people, marketing people, operations people, 
they're hearing about it, but then also future VCs are hearing about it, future financiers are hearing about it, your customers are hearing about it. And then once they hear about the positive news or the momentum, they are further motivated to either join your company as employees or be a customer or be your investor and so forth. And once that happens, again, it compounds back into itself. So it's kind of this feedback loop that is really critical to these startups. And once you don't have that, I know you say it's an addiction and maybe that's a slightly negative aspect to it, but it's also, uh, for better or for worse, the lifeblood of these startups where um, if you don't have that, then let's say, okay, you had a down round. Now everybody thinks you know, engineers don't want to join your company, investors don't want to invest in you, customers are not confident in you. And once you don't have any of those pieces, then again, like your future seems a lot more precarious than it would have if you had that growth story instead. So uh, yeah, there's uh, there's two sides uh, yeah, of the coin, I guess. Of course. And obviously I didn't want to put in a bad light. Like what I mean addiction, I think it's just like this, um, you know, when you're trying to push boundaries and when you're trying to, you know, may see what is possible, what is like not defined yet, what is out there. I feel like that's probably just the, the way I was looking at the startup world is that the drive behind people trying to survive and really push what is possible, what can improve people's life in ways that nobody has ever thought of. Like that's probably my experience, at least in the past couple of years is when you work for startups, that is definitely one of the mindset that you have behind it. But definitely no way in a negative way that startups out there are, I guess like, addiction wise it's just like this interest this passion this push to it it's definitely way more prominent at least in the in the startup world there's certainly one aspect of it where it's just like over over hype like everything gets hyped and then it gets crazed and then you have this mimetic madness or something uh, around them and everybody's like going crazy so i've certainly felt that and in some industries it's really really heightened like if you're in crypto i mean it's just it's just really really out of control sometimes so i definitely agree with yeah, uh, not necessarily being a pure positive, but uh, also like you mentioned, that's how people are motivated to push the boundary. If I had to put a, a, a nice sentence to it is that you have these very established corporate companies. So, you know, the big ones, the fangs and all that. Uh, but in the startup world, I guess like the highs are very high and the lows are very low. <laughs> um, yeah. It just swings um, very, very quickly. And then even when you're talking about like funding rounds, for example, like you don't really talk about that with the bigger corporates because they don't really need, well, they need funding, but they don't need funding rounds and like these like different routes of VCs or whether angels or whatever you need to, to do it. Uh, for them, the, most of them are probably trading, you know, publicly and they could have some way of funding to that. But when we're talking about startups and they need to keep up with this momentum, these funding rounds definitely have a big impact into it. And I guess for people who are not familiar exactly with funding rounds, it's basically if, uh, for example, if a startup needs capital to keep on running. So very, very common, a startup is not profitable. So every month they're going through <laughs> a good amount of money. Uh, at some point, you'll run out of it. So that's kind of the idea between these funding rounds. And in the startup world, I feel like a lot of people that work in the startup world talk about that way more than, I guess, people in you know the corporate world. Is that fair to say or no i think that makes complete sense because well uh certainly these startups don't really have any, they, they do have revenue but it's uh not not at all sufficient for them uh, in terms of even uh, financing maybe the engineering salaries and so forth so they are a lot more dependent on equity financing from vcs so it completely makes sense that a lot of the day-to-day -day or even yeah month to month is driven by the financing rounds and those are kind of they, they act as milestones almost um in a way that big big companies maybe they have quarterly reviews but uh 
they probably have different different kind of milestones like users or something like that and it's less of a focus on uh the venture capital financing and i actually do like when you mentioned like having uh the the consideration for even like engineering salaries like that's part of the whole engineering process bit where um if we kind of put a magnifying glass so yes the startup world like obviously it involves engineering all the other teams as well but if we put a little bit of magnifying glass of an engineering team engineering team sorry in the startup world Yes, number one, consideration, like, okay, how much can we pay engineers? Um, the other bit that I actually do want to get your take on is that since you're growing so quickly, um, what, what is, like, I guess the onboarding process? Like, what's, what's the way of being able to have welcome so many engineers, uh, I guess, more seamlessly? That, it's a very general question, but, you know, you could definitely add a bit of a color to that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, certainly, uh, I'm, I'm closely working with a lot of the engineering processes uh, at, at my company, so... It's been a, one of my core focuses. Uh, so I, I certainly do have some thoughts here and definitely a little bit of work in progress because um, there's a lot lot to do here. I think one pattern I found the most useful in onboarding new engineers is uh, you can even sort of model your whole engineering team out. So there's a almost like a, like a state machine you can think of where you start off as a new hire then one, you're being mentored by an engineer and almost like your goal in that mentoring is to make that engineer prepared to mentor a future engineer. So it's kind of like this uh, uh, process in which you think about growing your organization. And once you have that built in, then you have a machine that can sort of mentor future engineers who will in turn mentor future engineers and so forth. And then when it comes to mentoring like a, a particular engineer, I think the most valuable thing has been um, closely working with a highly connected engineer. So let's say there are, there are some people who, ha- who work pr- just, uh, basically in some silos, working on some, some deep project that doesn't necessarily interface with too many teams. Those are not necessarily the best mentors. Best mentors can be those who have uh, are a lot more cross-functional, who know pretty much everybody at the company or lots of people at the company who know other teams who work often with other teams. And the best way to onboard a new person I found is to just work with this highly connected engineer in a very tight capacity for uh, a sprint or two. And by just by doing that, you can basically learn how the company operates, all the tools, all the processes and so forth. And, uh, yeah, and and also, of course, to be able to become that future mentor for future engineers. Yeah, I, I think if you lay it out that clearly in terms of like, all right, everything I can teach you, like I expect you to be able to teach it to somebody else, that's a good way of approaching it. <laughs> that's kind of how knowledge gets passed on. And obviously, you want all that documented at the end of the day. So that's probably going to be super, super important during the operating process to have great documentation so that um, everybody could improve, contribute, uh, nearly be automated if ever that needs to be. So, um, and one thing that I do appreciate is pair programming. When we're talking about somebody working very closely to somebody else, the concept of pair programming is very, very common through the industry, through the software engineering industry, at least, where um, that's basically it. You get to share the, the coding experience with multiple people together. So I'm glad that you did put an emphasis on that. I think you can also think about uh, sort of your organization in, in a similar way as if it's a system. So the organization is basically a machine and it's not that different. Well, certainly you can't program, like you don't have a, maybe in the future you have an AI army and you'll just be writing code to uh, program all your laborers. But today you can't program the laborers, but it is still a machine. And the job of the machine is to produce 
to produce more software or produce more tools, products, technologies that will uh, propel the business. And uh, there, there's this, there's this uh, concept or this book called Team Topologies that even argues that you should think about your team literally as a, if you're designing APIs or system architecture, you should define the boundaries before between various uh, parts of your team and you should think about, okay, what is the interface? Like how does your engineering team interface with the product team and think about that interface? Who's the person who's interfacing and so forth. So yeah, I would say, and, and the onboarding process is pretty much like this where you wanna sort of build that feature into your machine of being able to onboard future engineers. And one of the cool or core things I think about when designing infrastructure is that it should be self-serve. So certainly onboarding ideally is self-serve. The engineers, they come in, they have a document, and they basically know just by seeing that document, what are the next steps and how they can be onboarded. So building a self-serve machine that uh, produces new engineers is part of uh, how, how I think about uh, engineering processes and onboarding as well. Absolutely love that because uh, that's just how, I guess, evolution happens. Basically, you just yeah. learn whatever you know previously and you get to add on top of it, uh, whether yourself serve or somebody else helping. Um, being able to do that at any time, any context, that's just better for the bigger picture at the end. And then when you were also mentioning uh, engineering teams, like depending on, I guess, at least in the engineering world, you get probably like four to six maybe engineers on, on a team at the same time. And then you have like these peripherals of like, products and then you have product designers then you have like program managers if you want to throw that in there like so many different parties i'm guessing that's similar to uh to what you guys have right in terms of i guess during this whole growing phase yeah i would say that's about the right team size um there are some companies uh, and i am a pretty um I, I like this philosophy of having a super horizontal organization so uh when i was at facebook for example i think i was like three levels between below Zuck as an intern uh, or something like that, which is pretty crazy given the size of the company. But I think the benefit of that is you have less verticality and the amount of verticality in your organization is uh, negatively correlated to the speed of your organization. So if it's a super vertical organization, like maybe, I don't know, maybe IBM is like that, where you have 20, 20 levels or something and you don't know, uh, you don't know how, how deep the rabbit hole goes or, uh, that's that's a really slow organization. On the other hand, what I what I saw at Facebook, for example, was was really really fast. I mean, they they did take their motto. Maybe the breaking part wasn't great, but they did move fast. So they did uh, move fast and break things. So I I was really I think that's a pretty important aspect, especially in building startups. Going back to how you know the only thing you have momentum and the growth and how the feedback loops build into each other. Having that velocity is really important. So. Certainly the median team size can be around four to six. Uh, and that's maybe that's the Amazon uh, two pizza box team size. But uh, I would personally experiment with even larger teams and flatter organizations and more autonomous engineers. Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having teams with less engineers than that, like two engineers or teams with like 10 engineers, like those definitely do exist. It obviously depends on the feature, the context, but yeah, it's always fun stuff that people that, you know, work in those kind of contexts, those kind of environment, we, we kind of talk about it very, very often anyway. So good to hear, uh, you know, people share the experience. Yeah, I think like for the people that are, I guess, still like in university or like trying to get into this 
proper software engineering world? Like, what kind of advice do you have for them? This is really generic, of course, but like, I know a lot of people that do sometimes listen to this, or even they're like in the first year, second year of working as a software engineer. If they want to keep on, you know, enjoying the whole journey, what kind of general advice do you have for people in that position? General advice is usually difficult because if it was correct, then everybody would apply it and they maybe would not be that good or something like that because um, uh, best advice is more specifically tailored so you can actually use it or something. Um, so along the same lines, um, yeah, I would, if there was a general advice, I would still say just go to a back tech company. They have a lot more process or structure around it. But if your goal is to be in startups, then I would recommend startups. Um, one ranking I have or I give to people is that number one is a fast growing startup that has uh, like top venture capital backing. Usually you will do better in almost any way, like in terms of learning or financially and so forth. Second is big tech like Fang. And third is startup that's not working. So I would not, uh, that's the ranking and I would, I would go, go with that. Um, there, are, there are various resources on finding fast growing startups. For example, Wealthfront publishes, um, I think it's the fast growing startups list or something like that, where you can just look it up and you can join one of those. Or career launching companies, that's what they call it. Wealthfront career launching companies. And yeah, joining one of those is probably better than Fang. And if you can't join one of those, just join Fang. And those are the one and two. And I would not recommend joining a startup that's not working because that would be pretty bad for your career. <laughs> I mean, some people are sadistic out there, so you never know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think, I think. I mean, honestly, in terms of when you're saying like generic advice, that is a great advice. Like, it could apply to so many different things. So, I really just want to thank you for that, and even just in general, thank you for being on the show to begin with, because I got the absolute pleasure to pick out your brain and all the good stories that you got. Where can people find you? Social media, any kind of stuff going on? Yeah, you can find me on my website uh, or my Twitter. Uh, my website is spelled A-B-H-A-Y-B-E-N-K-A-T-E-S-H.com. Yeah, uh, com, and you can find me there. And it also links me to my Twitter. So hopefully we can stay in touch there. Amazing. And of course, I'll link all of it, like Twitter, your website, LinkedIn, even if you want to. So definitely going to be available, that information down there. And yeah, just once again, thank you so much for being on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, Perry. Hopefully we didn't ruin your podcast too much. No, that's the purpose, and we've definitely done that. Oh, maybe we didn't ruin it. Hopefully, we ruined it a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, exactly. All right, then. Thanks again, and uh, I'll catch you guys on the next one. Thanks, Barry.